Hello, old friends. This is Mike Dawson, and I welcome you to the Silent Pianist podcast, where I interview curious people that do extraordinary things. My guest today is musician, singer-songwriter, and absolutely beautiful human being, Lisa Markley. I want to tell everybody that Thursday, August 17th at 8 p.m., Lisa is performing with her husband, Bruce Balmer, at the Kessler Theater. This concert is a farewell of sorts because Bruce and Lisa are heading to Woodstock, New York in the next few months to start a whole new chapter in what is already a full and beautiful musical life. Now it's time to listen to Lisa Markley talk to me about all things music and a little bit of everything else. It was what it was. I was trying, yes. you know, and and I just know, and I'll show you this video really cool at the end, of, after we're done with this. It's uh, it's about the um, uh, the guy that did, built the record factory in Detroit. Um, Jack White. Oh, and they built they 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 found eight working uh, uh, lays, and then they built a studio all analog, so you can go in there and cut the record directly onto the acetate, <gasps> and and they'll make it for you right now. And they found one of the '40s vending machines, where you could go in there like the old arcade things, and you could go in there and watch it, and uh, or or perform it, and then you know. 10 minutes later you've got it and then they'll they'll manufacture it for you so they're all set up only for vinyl wow and it's really cool i'll show you this little it's about a half an hour video but i'll send you a link and you watch it at your leisure so this thing is all working and mm-hmm. uh you know mr mr engineer that i am you know so i'll try not to be anal and looking at the stupid screen <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the silent pianist lisa thank you for inviting me and, you know, I've been a secret admirer of yours for such a long time because we have a lot in common. You know, we're, we're performers, we're, we're educators. We kind of go on our beaten path, you know, that's untrodden. Yeah, I, I, it does feel untrodden. Uh, wow, yes. And <laughs> For better, for worse. Well, you know, the thing is, is I think that's the way the education world is. You know, we try to, I think when we're most effective, you know, we try to do things that are a little unique. You know, and we, and it's all about personal example. So it's playing too, you know, it's not just play from the music and then I'll make a comment and, and, and let the, let the student figure that out, you know, but, and then we'll get to that, you know, but the thing that I'm really interested in is the kinds of, uh, you know, I guess I'm always interested in people's origins what made them the, the, the professional that they are now. And, you know, origin stories are always fascinating to me. You know, like for me, it was always like, you know, growing up in Motor City and seeing Ray Charles at seven years old and never recovering from that. <laughs> you know, okay, yeah. white kid in Detroit, you know, <laughs> and uh, Motown was still there and listening to CKLW radio, which is an AM station in Canada, and they would play all the rock music, you know, it's just awesome. So your origin story is an unknown to me. So where did you, where did you, uh, where was you born? I was born in Bellingham, Washington. 
So that's near Seattle, right? Yeah. Well, Bellingham is right on the border uh, south of Vancouver, BC. So it's. I was mm-hmm. born up near Canada, um, raised in Mount Vernon, which is about sixty miles due north of Seattle, up I five, and um, went through high school there. Um, we were a small town, double A school, one high school, six elementary schools, one middle school, and so. Um, there wasn't a huge orchestra program. There was a very small one, but there was a big band program. So in fifth grade, I signed on for trombone, and, and um, I played trombone all through high school. And um, I was introduced to jazz. I guess in junior high, they probably that's when they did the first Dixieland piece. That, that I learned to play. But I mean, long before that, like fourth grade, before I even picked up the trombone, my dad had been playing me Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and so stuff. So a lot of music in your in your home. What's your At dad's name? on the stereo. My dad? Yeah, what's your dad's William name? William Markley. Yeah, so and, I'm Markley. Yeah, yeah, so where was he, where was, what's his uh, ancestry? What's your ancestry? Uh, Markley is pretty much British. Yeah, okay. My, and, and. Pretty much from all four sets of grandparents, it's it's British, a little bit of Scotch Irish, yeah, nothing fancy, you know, just <laughs> white bread all the way. And and my dad right. was not a musician. My mother, but a music lover, clearly. He loved to listen, yeah. And, and he he's he's still with me today. Uh, he's eighty two. He just turned eighty two. Fantastic. Yeah. My mom was the musician. Oh, I have her voice. She had an incredible ear. She played upright bass in the orchestra and sang in a sextet in high school, the inside alto harmony, you know, and um, so she was the one, and she played piano. Was and, she your first inspiration, maybe? Um, or at least the role model for music? Or you was know, it, it was, it's a complicated relationship. Well, sure, it, it always <laughs> is, but, uh, you know, it's like I, I said. I would always beg her to not sing. I would ask her to quit singing around the house. I was embarrassed by her, oh, you know. Wow, she was She was so wackadoodle. She'd be, like, jumping in front of the television set and singing, Everybody loves and, and your friends would be around. Yeah, and I'm just like, oh my God, Mom, no, well, you know. No. And the whole world loves a weirdo. <laughs> Everyone's in a rut because everyone loves a nut, you know. And, and she, when my grandmother, my grandfather died, we the piano came to our house that my mom had, and and all the old sheet music. I'm just a square in the social circle. Who put that fly in my <laughs> soup? So I mean, all the you know. Got the same Louis Blues. I learned all that stuff from, I taught myself to read music when yeah. I was like um, second, third grade. Mom sort of plopped the John Thompson book in front of me. And yeah, she said, the, yeah, those the, are the, the notes. The Mighty Red Book. Yeah. And she's like, those <laughs> are the notes. Go ahead. And I just taught myself. I you know, still use know. that book. That is still my favorite book when I'm teaching piano, at yeah. least teaching little fingers to play. And, um, and then I kind of move on to other stuff. Yeah, but, you got to keep it diverse. But, you know, there's something to be said about the ones the, using the materials that we use. So what was your mom's name? Janet. Janet. Yeah. Okay, cool. And, uh, you know, so mom's the musician. Dad was just the music lover, clearly. Yeah, he was an appreciator of yeah, music. Yeah. And, and so what are some of the early concerts you remember, you know, uh, that you might have gone to see? I mean, I already told you, oh. my cat out of the bag, out of the bag, you know, Ray Charles at seven. Well, oh before God. the concerts, I was, I guess... I remember just being obsessed with songs and um, my dad would, I, I, I remember, I guess it must've been 1969 or maybe it was 67 when, Hey there, Georgie girl. I remember that being on the radio and I was probably four or five. My dad would call me into the living room when he knew it was my favorite song. Mm-hmm. Come here, Georgie girl's on, you know? And, um, and 
then we would go to my grandparents' house and I would have to reach up to hit the piano keys and I would I would be able to now I understand that um it was kind of a rare thing, but I yeah, remember, we take it for granted. <laughs> I remember being able to pick out the entire melody and bridge to the whole song of um, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Do, yeah. do, 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 do. And I didn't realize what a big deal it was until I tried to teach children how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb and how much trouble they had finding just steps. And I'm like, oh, I was kind of a weird kid, you know? And uh, um, yeah, my parents are just like, yeah, get off the piano, you know, because <laughs> I was driving <laughs> my brothers crazy. The first live concert. Honestly, would have been me playing in a band concert. Okay, so it was performing. Yeah, and um, as far as attending, my dad would always buy these season tickets. By the time I was in junior high, he would buy season tickets to the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle. And that was a big deal to drive the 60 miles to Seattle to go see an off-Broadway show. And I think a chorus line. Um, I know we went to a dinner theater and saw Tea House of the August Moon. Uh, I was probably in late elementary, early middle school. Um, all the musicals, you know, and of course I grew up on all the musicals. And was that a first love? Maybe the musicals? Yeah, you know, I guess it was. It really, it really was. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And West Side Story to this day sure. just slays me. Yeah, I'm, I'm still going. No, Tony, don't go out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> Sobbing, exactly. you know. And, and and so that's really. I, and and so I became a huge yeah, Bernstein fan. Just and, um, nuts. I've I've recently rewatched all of those uh, uh, the the Harvard lectures. Ah. Uh, yeah. Well, and even just that little five minutes he does where he talks you through the circle of fibs and just and the how overtone everything... series. Yeah. I wish like, I would have had that training when that was the one that needed to be taught to me in my composition class. It did. <laughs> it really did. There's he could just sum things up and I I think my favorite thing is I've gotten these adult students that just want to learn about music. And I had this one student that came to me for about six months. He was a gentleman that's about seventy that just kind of wanted to learn to play piano. And really, he just wanted to learn about music. And he would just hit me with a question when he got in the door. And it would take 45 minutes to go through it all. But it was so much fun to just kind of say, well, here's the best way to sum this up. And, you know, and let's talk about the modes, you know, and and, um, why, how the Greeks figured that out. Let's let me pick up my guitar and show you what happens when you split the string in half. You know, let me pick up my trombone and show you the overtone series. Um, through first position, you know, it's, it's like, it all is, it all is one and the same. And, mm-hmm. and, um, sure. so that's my favorite thing is, and so that Bernstein five minutes, it's like, Oh, he's good. You know? So it, that's that. And, and I guess to come back to concerts, the most amazing concert I, I think that sticks to me with, for this, from this day is, um, I mean, my parents would always take me to wave our ass to, to see. Mm-hmm. And so in 1983, right before I transferred down to NT, I begged and begged, and Mom got us tickets to see Count Basie Band. They, and then Sarah Vaughn was the second set, and she would sing with the Count Basie Band. And so this is 1983, shortly before Count, the Count died. And um, they literally had flown in from Tokyo, and so Seattle's kind of that stop after Tokyo. Right. And um, I had been playing Count Basie um, Sammy Nestico charts basically all through high school. So I was obsessed with Count Basie at that point and still playing my horn. And um, 
So to see him, you know, at that point he's on a scooter and, and he scooted out to the piano. He stood up, they pulled the scooter out, put the piano bench under him and he'd direct the band. He would count them off and go, do, 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 you know, the little thing he'd do on the piano, but it was pretty mild, pretty low key. And um, after one set with just him and the, and the band, he wheels off and Sarah comes on. And she's like, what city are we in? <laughs> right, right, she's, right. And she did her whole thing, you know, and um, that was like the summer before I transferred down to North Texas. That sounds very formative to see Basie. Yeah. And Sarah Vaughn together, you know, because Sarah Vaughn really was, I'd been singing secretly. I'd been, even though I was a horn player and, and um, copping all the trombone solos off the Chicago albums and stuff, I really um, was singing in my bedroom and Sarah Vaughn was the main one that I was singing with. So I, I've, uh, <coughs> I sense that you, you're kind of like a Van Cliburn fan in the sense that he pushes the, he pushed when he was alive, the sense of uh, the tradition of singing, no matter if what your instrument is, because it gives you that sense of lyricism and breath. Yeah, and, and that's stuff like that. Well, when I I heard the one interview with him, and I've searched for it online, and it was through KERA mm-hmm. that I heard him talking about it. But I've not been able to find. I found other quotes by him that sort of encircle that same thing. But his mother was his first teacher. Yeah, and she wouldn't let him play until he could sing it, and that that stayed with him. And and the attachment of breath to this other instrument, uh, the piano, the guitar. Um, that's a powerful thing that um, players that don't sing, they miss that. It's, you know, it's you really easy that. to be all about the digits and to become like this machine. And um, I'm really glad that even though I taught myself piano and was playing two-handed pieces mm-hmm. by the time I got to my fifth grade band and stuff, I didn't take formal piano lessons till high school. And um, so by then I'd been playing my trombone and I had a sense of breath. And, mm-hmm. and so my teacher would give me the Bach, but he also gave me Chopin, which I just loved. And um, to become aware of Van Cliburn later and see that, yeah, you know, it was there's... the first cassette I ever had was that Tchaikovsky that, that was the, yeah. the winner of that. And, you know, the thing about, you know, musicians like that, 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 that make you aware that even though their instrument is this one particular uh, thing, you know, it always comes back to the vocal, <laughs> it goes back to the vocal. And, uh, so when you started singing full on and, and you realized that that was really your, your, your voice, so to speak, you know, wh- what was those, what were those experiences like when you're first starting to figure that out? Were you just was it a natural thing or were you having to be very formal about it so that you could play guitar and sing or was it just like in a choir? How did that kind of happen? Oh, gosh. Well, first off, I was, I'm, um, I'm a strange child. I'm, a, I'm an anxiety kind of spectrum child. That's what I was. And I was well, welcome de- to the club. debilitatingly shy. And I think a lot of musicians are. It's really funny. Yeah, and we have the look at me disease, <laughs> though, a little bit. Oh, yeah. Eye contact? Forget it. You know, and, and it was really easy to hide behind my trombone. And um, so I would only sing in my room. Mm-hmm. And, but in the end, the desire to be making that sound, the desire to be surrounded by that sound in voice pushed me gradually through all the paranoia and all the fears and to where um, I was able to sing in front of people. Right. Um, and and um, it was really the desire to sing a song. And, and I'm hypercritical. So by the time I was willing to sing in front of people, I would only do it if 
the sound that came out of my mouth was the sound that I was imagining and desiring in my head. And that was my focus. And, and, um, that's always been my focus. Was this also a self-taught kind of a process or did you have some training? I, you know, I, I was in choir, but at that point in high school, our choir director was our band director, and he's a trumpet player, and he didn't sing. Was that the nature because you, it was a small school? Yeah, okay. and and um, actually, the year I graduated, our elementary school band director um, had retired, and so my high school band director, the year after I graduated from high school, went and took over all the band program for the district, and they did bring in a vocalist to teach choirs, and so they broke up the position differently. But when I came up, he was a band director. And I remember, you know, I, I, um, I always had an ear I could hear and I could, uh, trombone help that to evolve because trombone, and, and it really is more like voice than any of the other instruments. You've got the fretlessness, like the violin, the viola, the upright bass, the cello, but you've also got the attachment to breath. And, um, so you've got the breathing stuff and you've got the soft palate being lifted and everything that you need to do in tone production on the trombone. But you have to hear that note ahead of time before you go for it because um, you've only got seven positions or like trumpets, seven fingering combinations. And if you don't imagine that pitch in your head, you go to buzz your lips and there's one of five different notes you might be popping out of that mouthpiece. So you have to hear it in a way that a saxophone player can kind of fudge and get away with if their digits are all in the right place. Some version of that note's going to come out. But um, uh, brass is a little dicier that way. And, and, and so I had a kind of a freaky ear, and I would always be, I could hear the inner harmony. So like I'd go to church, and I'd always be very quietly singing the inside harmony on yeah, the Yeah, I'm hymns. always taking the tenor part. <laughs> yeah, always, you know. And, and, and I was doing that, and, and so I, did, I knew I wanted to major in music, so I needed to get over my fear of singing in front of people. So, so at that time, even before you yeah. went to, to, to university and conservatory studies, you already had a real clear idea of what you wanted to do. I knew by junior high, I was like, I want to be a professional trombone player. That was crazy, but that was, you know, I just knew it. And um, Lisa Watrous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a huge Bill Watrous fan. You yeah, know? And, yeah. and um, I, I eventually, by the time I got to North Texas, I really at that point, well, by my, by my junior year of high school, I'd begun kind of singing with friends. And um, I became obs- more obsessed with song. And, and I, I, so even though I was playing a ton of big band and listening to Doris Day and, and all the, the kind of cheesy white bread singers, I was also listening to Sarah Vaughn and, and um, Billie Holiday and Ella and everybody. But I was also listening to Simon and Garfunkel. And um, Paul Simon became just a huge influence. So I picked up guitar my senior year and began singing for myself. And, um, and then I would always be challenging myself. So I joined choir, I guess my junior or senior year. And I would be the one that would hear all the harmonies. I'd sang second alto and I could hear the harmonies, but I was too shy to project. And so all the other vocalists that were not shy about projecting, but couldn't hear it, they'd sit around me and they'd grab my note and then they'd belt it out. But I was just so riddled with shyness that, um, you know, that was kind of where I was. As in the morning sunrise, the light of love comes stealing into a newborn day. Flaming 
With all the glow of sunrise, a burning kiss is sealing A vow that all betray For the passions that thrill love Lift you high to heaven are the passions that kill love And let you fall to hell So in each story softly As in the evening sunset The light that gave you glory Will take it all away Stealing into a newborn day Oh, flaming with all the glow of sunrise A burning kiss is sealing A vow that all betray For the passions that thrill love Lift you high to heaven All the passions that kill love Let you fall to hell So and each starry softly As in the evening sunset that gave you glory will take it all away you know probably one of the most important times in, in anybody's musical growth is that time where you're intensely immersed in 24-7 music you yeah. know the, and you don't even realize how fortunate you are until you're gone you don't you don't I didn't appreciate it in undergrad I, I definitely appreciate it when I returned for grad school as yeah. a grown up, you know. But when I was when I wasted it when I was at U, when I heard of UNT, I was at a small school in New Mexico, and and it was like hearing of Emerald Emerald City, and I would hear these one o'clock band, you know, the lab bands records. Oh yeah, and I would listen to that, and I said, "This is a college band. Oh. <laughs> what the hell's going on here?" You know, insanely good. Yeah, they're they're killer. And so, you know, um, you know, I studied with Dan Hurley, and uh, ah. and uh, uh, and Ed Sof was uh, one of the guys I met at one of the Jamie Abersall things years and years ago, and he told me too many notes and you know things like that. You know, he was just that was, of course that's the way he was. You yeah, know? You no just, mercy. No, ooh, that's okay. You know, because <laughs> yeah. you need that. But too. so you know, what was maybe a couple of funny stories you remember about UNT that would, you know, that, uh, that you can say on air. <laughs> well, I, I, um, when I was there in 84, I transferred down. So I was a junior and I decided I didn't and this want was to... before, where were you before? Uh, I was my freshman year. I was in Whitworth college in Spokane, but I decided I wanted oh, to go to North Texas. Gotcha. But I, so I transferred back and I did Seattle my sophomore year in a community college to sort of kick out some um, general requirements. And I found this amazing music program at Shoreline Community College. And I was able to sing jazz and play in the jazz band. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they had three vocal jazz groups at this little community college. Wow. And um, so it was, they had a, a, an octet and, they may have had a quartet and an octet and then kind of a, a 16-piece vocal group. And so I got to do a lot of singing and playing. And um, 
I, at that point, I was burning out on the trombone, and I'd already applied right. to North Texas. I was accepted. I thought I wanted to do jazz studies, but I was listening to a lot of Bernstein and a lot of Copeland and uh, Prokofiev, uh, kind of just this, there's this one era of music that I just really dug. And um, I, I I thought, well, maybe I want to be a conductor, uh, but I was too shy, you know. And um, But I knew that I was kind of burning out on the big band form. So I began putting down my horn. And so by the time I transferred to North Texas in 84, I really didn't want to play trombone anymore. But I already had two years invested. And so I got down here, and um, I, I was writing songs and composing little snippets. My, um, my music theory teacher at Shoreline Community College, she got her PhD at Eastman School of Music. She went to school with Dr. Malman, who was the comp instructor at North Texas, head of the comp department, and she was best friends with Dr. Malman's wife. So Gloria Swisher uh, was a huge influence on me, and she would, throughout our music theory course, have us compose little eight-measure p- snippets for every new technique she taught us. And so she was kind of my first introduction to meeting somebody who was a composer in real life. She would take the summer off to do nothing but compose. And she was a killer pianist. And so I decided when I got there to become a composition major. And they let me slip in as a junior and sort of bypass the freshman and sophomore courses. And um, so I wound up being a composition major, which meant I didn't have to play as much trombone. And so that lifted that burden. But I still wanted to play jazz. And Mm -hmm. so I auditioned, and I got into reading band, which was the best, because I panic in the auditions, right? (laughs) Which is beautiful. It was the best thing that ever happened to me, because Jack Peterson Mm -hmm. was directing reading band. And so I don't know that it's funny, except that Jack Peterson is a joy. Jack Peterson is a brilliant teacher. And the reason I have the reading chops I have is because I had the luxury of being in reading band with Jack Peterson as the instructor. It just changed my life. You know, and he was he was so lovely. I, there were like two trombone players at the school. Well, three counting. Uh, there was Lee. Uh, I forget her last name, who would play bass trombone in the two and the one o'clock. She kind of bounced back and forth uh, because they always make you re-audition every semester. And then there was me. I was playing like in the reading band eventually and then nine and the eight o'clock. And then the other trombonist, uh, Jan, Jan Kageris, was on the classical side of things. So there there were three women playing trombone there at this point. And um, I was... In reading band, and Jack would always sing "Liza, Liza, the skies are blue" whenever he would see me, and um, and so he was just really wonderful. And, and then he was just a genius in um, how he taught us to read. Uh, it was just—I kick myself for not hanging on to my spiral notebook of rhythms that he ran us through. It was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very guilty of keeping everything. I'm high functioning hoarder. With all my books and things like that, it's books and records, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's you can't keep it all though. You know the thing that that you know this is a perfect segue to the kind of get into our education life a little bit. So it sounds like those instructors they were heavy influences for probably a million reasons. Yeah, you know, uh, like you say, somebody brings joy into into a very what can often be a very intimidating situation because you're yeah. asked to read and you're gonna you're gonna fail. And you're going to fail. And you, yeah, and, you, and you need to. And, 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 and learning you, that failing is part of that process. Yeah, yeah. Feeling safe in it. And, and, and yes, there's um, a, those a safe are the teachers. Space. Yeah. A safe space. Um, definitely 
Jack Peterson, uh, Steve Wiest, who was so cool. That dude is just <gasps> off the charts, man. He is just <laughs> so awesome. And he was like, he was directing the nine o'clock as a grad student when I was there. And so well, I, and he's already, he was already, yeah. uh, uh, gone. Uh, he's already been past the Ferguson thing when he was playing with him. Right. Yeah. It was cause yeah. I remember seeing him at, when Ferguson came and played the year before and Steve was playing and touring with him. Got it. And then Steve came the next year and was a grad student. And I got the luxury of being in his band for a short time. And another person that is just, it's not that he doesn't expect the best of you cause he will. Right. Very but, high standards. But there's a technique of, pulling it out of you that, that involves humor and happiness. No, not like hunky-dory, joy-joy, but wickedly funny. And, um, and then when I came back when he went to do grad school and he's there directing the jazz department, there was a heart and soul to the jazz department that I didn't sense in the 80s, that definitely during his tenure of being the head of the department. So he transformed it he into tra- something. I believe he did. I believe he did. And um, I wonder what people would say now of, of, of the school. Oh, you know, I, I think it's forever changed because, you know, it, of course, you know, people retire and more people come through. Right. And, Evolution. Um, and what the other really cool thing, when I was, when I was there, <laughs> yeah, Brad Laley was a student. Uh, Shelly Carroll was a student. Uh, I, I can't remember, you know, we all wound up kind of in the lower bands in the beginning, but of course they were monster musicians and I wasn't. So they shot up to the two and the one o'clock, like within a semester. Um, and, um, but Brad and Shelly were inseparable. So they were just like best friends and you saw them together all the time. So I'm really mixed up as to who was in what band when? Because I almost never saw them apart. You know? Right, that's very funny. You know, <laughs> yeah, like and and you know, Brad's, musical Siamese twins. Yeah, well, when you when you find someone, you click with musically Chemistry. and and as a friend, you know. To and so I I think of those two together, and I admired them so much, and um, they were always very kind to me, and um, so now Brad's up there uh, doing what he does, heading up the whole, um, I guess, the saxophones. Uh, department in the jazz studies uh, and and of course now their composition department has opened up to where the jazz arranging side of the degree has a composition element to it that it did not have when I was there in 84. I know that there were definitely people that were doing the jazz arranging thing that would go to the classical side to take composition lessons with Cindy McTee and folks like that where I was I was studying with Cindy and um but you had to do it outside your degree plan to do it. And um, now with DeRosa there, uh, the jazz composition side of things, so it's no longer just arranging. It's really, the whole department is So you're not up. just doing David Baker books and, and yeah. doing stuff like that. And they opened up, the other option was I looked at voice in the 80s, and you could only do a classical voice degree in the 80s. And they sent, I, I did choir and jazz singers in mm-hmm. the 80s, and they sent me for lessons, and I had one classical voice lesson, and I was like, no. Right. I dropped it. I was yeah, just like, insane. I this is not the route I want to go. And, um, and so now you can get a PhD in jazz voice. It's, it's really amazing. Uh, it just, you know, and this is, brings up a real interesting thought that I had as I was preparing for this was just the fact that we're talking about jazz and rock in a university setting <coughs> is almost weird to me because, you know, I learned rock in honky tonks 
and in clubs and jazz as you know as we all know you know you look at the the Kansas City vibe that was going on and those particular you know that was their universities you know those african-american yes. uh, uh performers and it, it was such a you know those people that were trying to get into the Basie band or getting into um uh, uh you know what was later the, the ellington groups and stuff like that you know there was such an intense university of of uh of informality but you know i think that those those learning environments were just as intense as anything you would see at a Juilliard or an Eastman, and 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 often more appropriate, I think, to the to the style. And, yeah, and and I completely agree. I, I think as soon as it enters academics, there is a a really great element of learning to read, um, but but that's a double edged sword too. Um, certainly, when you come up with the techniques of how to teach improv. Um, there are some really great tools, and and it's certainly unlocked a lot for me. Uh, but at the same time, it really depends on the school and on the teachers and on the students. And some students are able to transcend. They're able to absorb all the academics and then transcend and become themselves as a musician. And of they course, have their you know, uniqueness. They do. And, and maybe you don't hear it at 22, but by the time they live a little and they hit 30... You know, that's where they are. And um, I really <clears throat> feel strongly, especially, that there is an element of what we teach in academics and jazz that the classical side of school, they're missing. And there was a grad student that wrote to me a couple of years ago when I was back doing the vocal jazz studies there. And um, she was writing to folks that she knew on the, on the jazz side of things, wanting to know why our ears why we were doing so much better uh, in ear training and in sight singing and all that stuff that we have to go through on the classical side of the program to pass your piano barrier and pass your sight singing barrier. And I was like, you come over here and you take improv one and improv two and you try to get out of those without having developed your ear. It's impossible. If you go through those, you're going to have a great ear. And the way they're teaching it on the classical side, they're dropping the ball. They are not really approaching it from the right side. I, I feel really strongly about it. And so, I, I feel like the new classical music, to me, is jazz. And It's the American classical music. Yes, and it demands the chops and technique of classical, definitely, especially to protect from injury and, and you know, dexterity and flexibility. Um, but it develops your inner ear and your brain and your ability to improvise be, and and. It pulls it out, and to me, you become the ultimate musician, you know. And if you look at Herbie Hancock or um, Oscar Peterson or Keith Jarrett or any one of the really great jazzers, that you can see, you can hear that they've got Chick Corea, this incredible classical technique, and they've managed to come out of their classical training and not be stilted. But to me, so many musicians come out of a strictly classical background, and they're completely hobbled, and especially if they're taught not to play music until they read. Right. And, you know, and this is nothing new. If you look at the Kodai and the Orf methods, that speech 
is first. This is a language. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we enter kindergarten with a pretty strong command of our language. We can form complete sentences. Nobody's telling us this is a subject and this is a verb. We just speak and right, we get it. Right. We're just now. Na- and so then they begin to introduce you to, oh, now here it is if we wanted to write this. But you could already speak a bazillion words and communicate your thoughts. And yet in music, we stick them in front of piano and, and we say, you can't touch these keys unless you read it off that page. You know, what kind of speaker would we be if we weren't allowed to speak until we got to kindergarten? You wouldn't and, get past the first sentence. Yeah, and if you weren't allowed to speak anything that wasn't already on the page, see, spot, run. And yet that's what we expect in, in all of the piano method books. And I just, you know, it's my soapbox. I, it's, it's, it's a common <laughs> complaint that, that I hear is just simply this, this disconnect between reality and the dogmas of certain things, yeah. you know, yeah. when, when I was, uh, you know, <coughs> studying uh, undergraduate, uh, especially in my piano lessons, I would jam with my teacher. Oh, yeah. And he, he would say, you know, you're the only guy that does this because there was no j- really jazz part of it there. And I said, well, you know, I don't know how else to do it. You know, I, I'm not a great reader, but I know how to feel it and I know how to play it. And, uh, you know, I learned all that rock stuff, you know, just by, just by listening to the records. And I, I know it served me well, but I knew that I wanted to be the full musician, you know. Yeah. And so, the, so that's what the university kind of did for me. So I'm in complete agreement. So, you know, we, this, is, this is fantastic. I'm really learning a lot. Sets my soul on fire 
thing that I notice is the fact that, you know, you really pay attention to melody, but it's also like you're, del- you're deliver you really have a good sensibility of, of, of emotion for each song. You, you seem to take a lot of care in trying to communicate the, uh, the, 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 the story or the, or the, uh, or the emotion that I'm, I keep coming back to that. I don't know how to describe it any other way. You really know how to, con- you know, communicate your own lyric. Well, is that so, is that something that um, was that just simply by learning tons of tunes like the you know Simon and Garfunkel stuff or Joni Mitchell or you know all those great uh, performers uh, and songwriters singers you know is there somebody in particular that you that you emulate or try to model by or maybe when you were younger maybe it's you're you're imi- you're you're paying attention to yourself so much now but maybe when you were younger yeah um, well definitely. I would say, you know, I was I was I was definitely listening to all the really crappy pop music of the day, and it was oh, I the have a thousand 80s, records you know? of crappy pop music. <laughs> but but <laughs> when I when I found Paul Simon, that was the first time I became aware of teaching myself. I I, I got the book of Paul Simon complete. And that was the reason I learned guitar. I would, I staggered through that entire book and, um, of course, internalized every one of those albums by listening to them also. But I learned every single song in Paul Simon complete and, and struggled my way through bar chords and stuff. But that's the first time I became aware of going, Oh, why do I like this song? It's about, I know I like it because he did this with the lyric right here. I became really aware of what was to me good writing. And um, thank heavens I became aware of that by studying Paul Simon, you know, and not. That's a master class not in the writing. Knack, you know, <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, well, I, I mean, I was listening to a ton of Gershwin, although, you know, I don't necessarily agree with Ira Gershwin lyrically now as far as need, things needing to be an exact rhyme. What Paul Simon would do. Well, number one, Paul Simon delved into all these different musical genres and used the finest musicians. And he wasn't afraid to write a two-minute song or a one-minute song that had just sort of a through-composed sensibility to it. And yet he would turn around and write more of a standard pop song, you know. And, and um, so he's absolutely brilliant. And and then I guess by... And I'd begun writing songs in high school. Um, I will confess... In junior high, I was a card-carrying member of the Barry Manilow fan club. Oh, well, that's okay. So I, I'm just in full disclosure. But <laughs> <laughs> so my first songs in high school probably sounded, you know, um, a lot like Barry Manilow. Sure. Until, thank God, I discovered Paul Simon. And, um, and then I let somebody hear some of my songs in, 90, in 83, 1983. And she said, you know, you sound like you would like Joni Mitchell. And I went, oh, cool. I think I've heard Yellow Taxi on the radio. Yeah. I, wh- where should I start? And she said, get Court and Spark. Yeah. And I'm so glad that's what she told me, you know, not to go back to the folk stuff, but to start, bam, right there. And right. she was playing in jazz band with me. She was a piano player in the Shoreline Community College jazz band I was in. So I was transferring to NT, and I bought Court and Spark on vinyl. And it stayed on my turntable for a full semester. I drove my roommate insane. Uh, mine was Mingus. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I just, because, because I just, 
I was completely clueless. Oh. You know, I mean, you know, to me, uh, great female vocals at that time was Renaissance. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I just love how, you know, I mean, she was a real natural piano player, but, you know, when she tells the story of her piano teacher smacking her with a ruler when she'd leave the written page... And so she just said, and I've tried to transcribe what she's doing on the piano. She's got her, you know, she can't tell you where beat one is. She can't tell you what chord she's playing, but she's got a sensibility and only the jazzers could figure out how to sit in on that. And, and then she had a real conversational style of lyric, which is what I was naturally gravitating for, towards. And so when I heard her on that album, I went, oh my gosh, somebody who thinks harmonically and rhythmically in their phrasing the way I do, this is... It's this, like listening to art song. In a lot of ways, yes. You know, I think that that's that's what I track. What what attracted me about her, you know her her music making, you know, it, it, no matter what uh, level or what or what period, you know, we're kind of looking at the, like Beethoven had three periods in his yeah, life. Yeah, oh you know? yeah. She definitely has a lot of yeah. There's very a, precise. Yeah, you can really hear the difference. But I I think that's what's fascinating about artists like that. And I, it strikes me a little bit in what you do. You like to kind of go off into these uh, these areas of exploration. And maybe that's why you have such a diverse discography is because you like to explore different things. Do you think you'll ever do the uh, like a full instrumental compositional album someday? You know, I'm. Is it something you've been playing with? Because that's one of my yeah. one of my bucket lists is to is to you know see if I can still wave the baton and do that. I'm I'm definitely open to the idea. You know, I I'm I'm really excited that I'm going to be up in the land of Carla Blay, which just freaks me out. Oh you know, my goodness. I would, you know, I would hope to run into her in like the organic grocery store in Woodstock. You know, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think but, it'll happen. You just said it, so it's going <laughs> to I'm just going to visualize it. You know, I um, when I finished my composition degree, I was so full bore into songwriting on the side. Um, I just said, I'm through with this. And, and, and I was pretty disgusted with what composers were expected to be doing in the 80s. We were, they were forcing us to do all this computer music, um, you know, dealing with the synclavier, and it didn't move me. It, it felt heartless. It felt cold. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to thank God I wasn't studying composition in the 50s when you had to do 12-tone. It's bad enough I had to do it as an exercise, you know. But um, my heart really lies with, you know, Bernstein and Bartok and Prokofiev. I, I love the Eastern Europeans and their sense of syncopation and their ability to take these folk melodies. So they're really good melodies, melodies that Joe Schmo could sing. But then they turn them on their ear and reharmonize them. You know, Bartok is the king of that. And um, Stravinsky, you know, I, and so these are the composers. And then, of course, Aaron Copland, as far as the Americans, uh, a little bit of um, Roshberg. I think George Roshberg, although, you know, he really kind of ran the extreme between tonal and atonal, and he went a little more tonal than I would like. And even Copeland, he came from an atonal kind of perspective early on, and uh -huh. then he started doing, you know, all this great Appalachian Spring and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, you're just, you, and I was completely unaware that, the, that, that, that he had in his very beginnings, you know, and we're coming back to Bernstein, you know, because he, you know, they were hanging out together. Oh yeah. You know, and you're just, you know, how did you, how did you meet him? Well, cause he kind of learned the transcriptions and all this stuff. But you know, the thing about, you know, Bernstein and Copeland hanging out together just makes me happy in the universe. I'm not sure what that is. You know, oh, that's, yeah. that just blows my mind. Well, we could have a whole other podcast on Bernstein and we might do that someday. Oh, you should, you know, Candide is, my favorite of his little pieces outside of Broadway, you know, and, and of course Broadway, 
since Sondheim is no longer with us, you know, I, I feel like Broadway has really changed. And I, I'm not too keen on what they're doing now because it's been so popular. So you're not a Hamilton fan? Well, Hamilton is like maybe I'm, I'm still, you know, reeling from the fact it was Disneyfied for so long. I think Hamilton is going to break us away from the whole Disney factor. Just, and, okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 It's curious. It's a curious evolution, you know. But I think you know when when the when the when the corporations kind of swoop in and <laughs> it's all about yeah. the dollars and, and you know and, it's butts and seats. Lion King and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? But when I was going to you know to, to New York and seeing stuff, I was just going to plays a lot back then. You know, because I was kind of done with the you know with a lot of the uh, you know new things that were uh, you know coming up for Tonys and stuff like that. I, w- I wasn't really digging it. You know, I, I, I keep going back to those to those things of the 50s and the 40s. And, and that's, you know, maybe we just all long to have what we had in our youth. And oh, this sure. This is just the story yeah. of generations, you yeah, know. We're all, you kids, get off of my yard. You know, it's just like. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there's a we're going to wrap this up here in a little bit. But oh, I could talk for hours. This but is yeah, wonderful. you're a very wise person. To think <laughs> you know, the, the thing that I, I, I was, you know, because I keep coming back to in my mind is why I invited you here today as my first guest. It was to give you the opportunity to, you know, share this wealth of, uh, of insight and wisdom as a musician and, and an educator. And I went to your website and I see this thing from uh, Mr. Slavens here. And he says, Lisa Markley has more depth, control and beauty to her voice in a live concert setting than most vocalists get in the studio. Driving that voice is a soul of wit and intelligence and a heart of gold. So you've made music with Paul for years. You you probably went to school together. We met, we both arrived in Denton in 84 and we worked at Mama's Pizza together. And um, So what did that yeah. make you feel when he gave you that testimonial? I have been... Did it blow your mind? You know, I'm like baby sister and and I have been sort of like... One of the Ten Hands groupies back when they were the Gone Men. I we would go. After I saw them at the Caravan pizza. of Dreams. That's how long ago I saw yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I would. We would close Mama's Pizza up and go out to this shack in Aubrey that he was renting with friends. That you know, scorpions are going through the shack. There's no plumbing, and, and it's just they, the guys were going out and using the you know the the field for the outhouse, and and it was just like really roughing it. And we play music all night long, and he's writing all these pop tunes, but he was working on his masters in. Um, theory at that point. And he always encouraged me as I would bring in these songs to him. And um, so I've been following him around and, and so influenced by him for so long. And when he said that about me, I, cause I had no idea what he thought. Yeah. You know? What do you do and with that? You know, I was, especially I was just, somebody that's a, you know, uh, with that kind of history. Yeah. I, I take it to heart cause I've been, you know, baby sister ogling and following him and admiring him for so long. And, <laughs> you know, he's very patient with me and, and, um, he's been a huge influence in, in a lot of my, both he and Bruce, my husband have this sense of stride. I, you know, kind of, uh, in, it's not retro, but you know, it really kind of is in, in a sense of stride, left hand, boom, chick, boom, chick, whether it's on the piano or the guitar, and then this kind of funky wit to their lyrics. And um, I love to write tunes like that, and they've been a big influence me in, in, to me in that range. And, of course, Paul has just got 
such a range of how he rides instrumentally. And when he went back and did some more studying and composition later, I was really envious. And I, I'm finally, I've begun writing horn charts where I'm writing fills and stuff to go with my songs. And I am open to the idea of returning to writing string pieces and stuff that I was doing in the 80s. It's all an, an, uh, a natural process, you know, and, and yeah. when, it, when it's right, it's, it feels right. I had just a couple more thoughts, and, and, and we've, we've touched on our educational life, you and I, um, but, you know, I'm one of these cats that never taught in the public schools or even like a private school. I was always a freelancer. And even when I was working uh, day jobs, I was always teaching, you know, always teaching. And, you know, it's, it, it keeps me grounded yes, and it keeps yes. me honest and nothing, nothing like a, you know, a 10 year old girl uh, calling you out on your stuff. <laughs> you know? It's true because they will say what they think. That's and, right. But, you know, they say teach once, twice taught. And, and I became the musician I am from 20 years of teaching, uh, holding it down in a classroom, um, affected me as a performer and, and got me out of my shell a little more. And then the one-on-one just made me listen better. It, I learned how to break things down better. I became much more self-aware of my own head games. You know, how, how can I require this of my student if I'm not going to do it myself? Right. It's a force of personal, personal example. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so teaching to me, it saved my life. It just pulled me out of my shell and, um, when I first began entertaining the thought of teaching, I, my father's a teacher. And, um, and what did he teach? Sixth grade, you know, by oh, the time wow. I was growing up. Yeah, Holy which smokes. in our hometown, that was the top of the elementary school. So they <laughs> pull in the military. You know, this is back when you could spank the kids and he had a paddle with holes in it, you know, and he would break it over people's butts every year. Right, and, right, um, they, right. The boys would hit junior high and they would make him a new paddle with holes <laughs> and send it to him. Um, and so I always wanted to teach, but I didn't think that I had, that I was strong enough. I just, I, and, um, but the desire to do it overcame that. And when I first was sitting in, in elementary schools doing observation, I was still so shy and I was put in a practice room with these seventh grade trombone players. And I was just supposed to count them through some exercises. I was too shy to raise my arms and count them off. One, two, three, four. That's, I mean, what, to get through conducting class in college just about killed me. I was, it was just too much. I, I would go into panic attack mode. And somewhere along the line, once you get tossed into the classroom, it's sink or swim, you got no time to be paying attention to yourself and how anxious you are. You have to address stuff that's going on right there. And, um, and so doing that changed how I was on stage. And, and so teaching... And, and and then, you know, and the, all the discipline aside, which is the mm-hmm. whole classroom thing, I, that's the, the only thing I really despise is the dance of discipline we do. Yeah. But, I never had yeah. to experience that because I would always have to give the kid back after 30 minutes and it's back in mommy's arms. Yeah. Or well, like when that. they're one-on-one, there's not so much pack mentality. And some right. of my worst kids in the classroom are a joy one-on-one. Uh, they're spunky. They're hilarious. And it's you have to quell all this genius <laughs> wit in order to manage a class of kids. Right. And, um, yeah. It, but I there's nothing. Nothing like hearing a group of kids sing a song at you that they love. It, it will change your life. And, and so I, to me, to have raised, and now I've had over a 1,000 students between my classroom gigs and my private students, 
And um, that's a lot of love. It is, and to blood, sweat, and to tears. have them find me on Facebook and tell me how much songs still move them. I'm like, okay, my life has not been wasted. Eddie likes to roll them. Eddie likes to stash them. Eddie likes to toss them as the tails he wins them. Modern pennies still wrapped up in copper jingle like timber copper solid rings like money. Eddie likes to pinch them. He doesn't spend them. He keeps saving. Put them in the bank and they just keep right on adding, multiplying exponentially. Penny on the track, stretch as far as you can. Taking goes down, baking going up, hustling gigs in the city. I may do so, never think for a minute about the possibility of getting a happy and a mortgage on Long Island. But keeping the heat on shoes on the case, be keeping the food on the table. Maybe in a good month he puts away for rainy days. up on Penny Lane, or was it trading garbage down on Wall Street? Pips, Popes, and Ponzi's, bang on a patsy, call on the prophet. Picking through some pockets, pennies, boom, pensions, never mention Jesus in the temple. And the money changes, they just keep shouting about markets and wars, commies in the union, getting off on someone else's dime, do no time. A little base with Jeroomies, gaming pennies, lying in pocket, shaking fingers, and wagon dogs and keeping up their assets. And leaving Eddie, picking lucky pennies, lucky if you pay him forward. Set aside the wee bags of rolling all the rest for rainy days. By, by uh, all accounts, you've impacted so many people. And, you know, as you, as you kind of think about, you know, taking your teaching practice to another part of the world. Yeah. Are you going to take a break, you know, or are you going to kind of keep it, keep your hand in or is it, is it going to be, you know, writing some scores and, uh, and getting the, getting the quill pen out and putting the black ink on the paper again? What a beautiful thought. Yeah. You know, I, well, I definitely, it's going to take time to establish a private practice in a it takes, place. It took and, me a long time. And, you sure. know, it's Woodstock. How many music teachers do they need? They've already got plenty <laughs> of really <laughs> phenomenal musicians and teachers up there. Well, maybe you'll study with somebody. You never know. Oh, that will probably be my first step. Um, Bruce is really encouraging me to do as much gigging as possible. The reality of needing to earn money is there, and I will probably look at a couple music stores in Kingston and see if they will take on a teacher. I might return to teaching trombone or something. But I'm reluctant to get tied in with a music store. And, and yes, all for, the, all the, for all the reasons we've all been through that before. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I, at this point, I'm 53. I've got my opinions. I teach my own curriculum. I'm creating my own curriculum. There's a combination of song and chord theory and improv along with Bach. And I, I have my own ideas about it. And, and so 
I don't know that I'm ready to surrender to anybody else's agenda anymore. And, and, but I got to eat. So, right. But you know, I think, I think you can create your, your perfect situation because you have some very strong convictions about how you, how you, uh, uh, conduct your, uh, your, uh, teaching world. And so I, I would say you should just, uh, stick with your dream a little bit because it's going to find its, find its way into reality for you. Thank you. That gives me hope. Well, well no, it's, we'll it's absolutely, you know, I mean, I know that when I walked away from the day job and, and I said, okay, I'm, well, I, you know, it's going to be gigging, but it's also going to be teaching because you just got to, you got to make that, make that paycheck, uh, and make those bills every month. And the thing that I noticed was when I was doing a lot of the freelancing, and creating curriculum kind of on the fly and then you kind of develop a process and you yes. see what works and you fail and you and you and you get a little bit better hang on it sounds like you could write your, your own uh uh book about uh, how you teach it's definitely dancing around in my head could be a memoir of some kind you know and and could be the ms markley and me uh memoir <laughs> <laughs> please <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, once I mean, we'll look forward to seeing that film on on uh, on on the interwebs. Oh yeah, I'm sure it'll pop up eventually. No, no, yeah. tell me about Sherry. I mean, no, so Sherry what's Vance. The story with her. Oh, you know, she's my sister in the arts. She is my age, and we met when I was returned when I returned to North Texas to do grad school, and um, so I was gigging a lot up in Denton, and she came out to one of the gigs. She was friends with the the venue owner, and they said, "Oh, you have to meet Sherry," you know, and and um. We clicked right away, and um, I just gave her a bunch of my CDs, and then she called me up, and she was obsessed with this one song of mine, Eve Takes the Fall, and, and she was really looking for a feminist angle, and she loves to do music videos. That's her first love, and, and so she's like, you got any more feminist songs? And I'm like, not really, you know, not that I'm not a feminist, but right. that just hasn't been... I, You're not there out in the marches. Yeah, not everything needs to be a song. I, it's, but I can see doesn't. you marching and, and wearing your knitted hats. Yes, and I definitely do. And, <laughs> and so as we... She's like, would you be my thesis? And she, she's working on her master's in film. And, and so here we are both in grad school. What do you do with that? And, and I'm like... My first instinct is, oh my God, no. <laughs> yeah. And which means the answer is yes. If it scares the crap out of you, you say yes. And that was, I, I said, anything outside of your comfort zone, that's where you need to be. That's where the good stuff is. So and that's your mantra. Yeah, it really is. That's, and she, that's what your tombstone will read. It has to, because <laughs> I've lived my life as anxiety child. So my job is well, to get out of your head and, yeah. and just, you know, to get out there. And so Sherry followed me with a camera for years. And um, in the end, the film morphed, I mean, you know, I probably one twentieth of all the hours of footage she has as she decided what the film was going to be. And, and so the music video still exists as being made. And, and, and it's almost like a little documentary on the making of the music video. And then I was like, Sherry, you can't not be in this film yourself. We, cause at this point we developed such a friendship and I'm, you know, I'm horrible when she's got the camera in my face, I'm looking at her and talking to her. You know, I, I, I would try to be spontaneous and pretend there was no camera, but in the end she became such a part of my life and we became part of each other's lives that, um, it made sense that this was really about both of our journeys and uh, who we are creatively and who we are as women in our fifties. Cause we don't see ourselves on stage. You know, we don't see ourselves in the world, um, not 
except in our friends, but you know, not in media and, um, how that needs to change. And, um, do you think that's part of what this movie is about? I think so in, in some way. I, I really do. I mean, it's it's very much a, a journal pick, just the same way that, you know, songwriting can be confessional sometimes. And and, and so it's about our journeys. But it the bigger thing was that we don't see women and women of a particular age uh, post-menopausal, into their hot flashes, embracing gray hair, you know, out there doing their thing. And yet this is, I'm a better singer now than I've ever been. I'm a better writer now than I've ever been. And, um, you're hitting your stride. I, I'm like, I'm just getting it together you know? <laughs> compared to what I was doing in my twenties. I'm like, I wish I, I really wish I had more time. Cause we physically, of course, like the voice is changing. I've been through thyroid cancer. I'm lucky to have a voice. And then the aging voice. And, you know, we're not like athletes where we get 10 years and we're done. And you're out, right. You know, but but there is a change in the voice that happens and a real proactive maintenance that we have to do to maintain our instrument for the next 20 years. You know, whether I'm doing guitar or piano, which in the end, um, voice is what I spend most of my time on. And, and um what I feel strongest at as a musician is voice and writing. Um, guitar and piano are merely tools to deliver the music that needs to get out there. So, yeah. you know, maybe in, in, in uh, kind of conclusion here today, uh-huh. this has been just such a joy to have you here today. And I can't imagine having a guest that would just encapsulate my vision of what this, uh, conversation will be with others you know uh, over the next few months i'm going to be having filmmakers and scientists from nasa people that have explored antarctica it's going to be just nuts this is amazing and it's the silent piano the the piano hasn't made a sound i know i haven't haven't played a lick (laughs) which is probably everybody's very grateful of this so you know the thing and the thing i want to ask you in in kind of closing is you got this fantastic gig coming up at the Kessler Theater. Yeah. And there's this there's this venue that we that we have come to love um because it's all about the music there. Yeah. So tell me about these guys that run this place and what what it means to you to to be a part of that world. Oh. You know, it's it's really amazing. They're literally a mile down the street from my house and um I've been teaching in Oak Cliff for since 94. So I've been driving past this vacant theater for decades. Wondering what's going on. What's going to happen, you know, and um, for all of the negative that we have with gentrification happening, uh, the renaissance of Oak Cliff has made me very happy to see. I I don't necessarily like a lot of the apartments going up right now, but things like what's happened with the Kessler and when they first opened it up, Jeffrey's vision, Jeff Lyles, of as they did the renovation of grabbing musicians in and and filming them f- as part of resurrecting the Kessler in the midst of this construction site, and just you know, I mean, go, to go in there, it's a hundred degrees in August, acoustically, and just play a song while he videos and. People, I'm sure, in the neighborhood were just wondering what the heck, right. you know, and. Um, it, it's really been amazing to see this happen. And then the first year, 
you know, they definitely pulled in all the locals. And at first they would put us in the front room and eventually they let us do the big room. Um, but as locals, we don't draw. We don't put the butts in seats that it takes to really get things going. But as the second year went in and they got the Storyteller series going and they're bringing in Jimmy Webb and Guy Clark and it's this intimate venue that, you know, standing room only, if you really cram them in, might hit 400, like when Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians play or something. Right. Um, it's, it's a hard venue size to make viable. Uh, it be, it's beautiful to experience as an audience it's member. It's a listening It's a listening room, and it's very intimate, but, and it's intimate in a beautiful way, but with only seating for you know, what they can do, uh, folks can't make as much money. And, and so to say, we're not going to worry about that, we're going to make it work, and every year it's gotten bigger and bigger, the folks coming through to play when they, Ricky Lee Jones sold out those two shows, I mean, it's, and their heart is in the neighborhood, and now, of course, they are just thriving, they're on, they're doing great, and they don't need the locals, <laughs> They're really wonderful to let us. But open they truly support the local, they the local do. scene. They do, and they believe. Well, I in should listening. say Texas scene. It's not Is even it, really local. Yeah, you know, all things are local in this case. But and 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 it's, so it's at this point we haven't gotten to play because we just aren't big enough. And um, so when I approached Jeff and said, you know, I'm leaving and I would just like to do one last show with the full band. Uh, once a year, I try to do a show with a full jazz band and traditional instrumentation, but I pull in a couple of horn players. Um, so it costs me a little more, <laughs> but it's worth it because then I, yeah. I get to pull out my arranging chops and really write some arrangements. And, um, and he said, yeah, let's see what we can do. And so, of course, Damon, he was going to do it anyway. Oh, he is just so kind to let us do this. And um, Damon Clark is going to split the night with me. How about that? I'm just like in awe. I'm like, well, <laughs> there's no way I'm going on after Damon because he is like nobody you have ever heard. You know, he is just the most phenomenal vocalist. Speaking of just blending classical to jazz in a way that works. Um, and is completely unique and completely his own. And, and there, it's so rare that you hear a musician that is so completely themselves and brilliant, just. And so I'm really honored to be doing this. And, and because it's my going away party that I'm throwing for myself, we're going to split the band. We've got Julie Bonk on piano. Oh, she's monstrous. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and Drew Phelps, my old buddy from North Texas on bass. At this point, it's all old North Texas pals. Um, Chris McGuire on woodwinds. Uh, Tony Baker on trombone. He's very graciously agreed to come down and do this gig. And um, Andrew Griffith on drums. And he is my drum soulmate. You know, I just... I like to have gigs with Andrew, and I get to sit next to the drums. And he's throwing kicks in there. He hears every breath that I'm doing and plays with me like I, no drummer ever has. And so I'm thrilled to get to do this show. And then, and then the band will stay on and they will be Damon's band also. And then I'll get to just sit back and enjoy a oh, really good, great show. Good, good. And so it's on Thursday, August 17th. Um, the show will start at 830 and I'm the first set on at 830. 
Well, this podcast will be live in time for promoting that a little oh, bit. Oh, yay. And we'll be doing a silent auction because Bruce and I are trying to raise the money for the moving van. Oh, and, boy. And so I, Everybody, please come and buy yeah, something Yeah, there's the just a couple things. The dress that I wore on my very first solo CD from Goddess of Groove, it's this red bouffant 1950s dress. So we've got it on silent auction. Fantastic. And, um, the big upright grand from the One Word album cover, um, that's on silent auction. And then the Velvet Divan, and we'll be singing my song, The Velvet Divan, devoted to our lovely, uncomfortable couch. And those will be the three <laughs> items on silent auction. So come out, please. Come out to the Kessler and, and hear all this great music. And and uh, then we'll all travel to uh, New York and come see you at one of your gigs. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so very much. This has been a just a wonderful privilege and a joy to have you here today. It is my great privilege. All right. Wow. Lisa Markley delivers the goods for my debut podcast episode, The Silent Pianist. Don't forget to come out to the Kessler Theater in the Bishop Arts District in Dallas's Oak Cliff neighborhood, August 17th at 8 p.m. to hear Lisa Markley and her husband, the great guitarist, singer, songwriter, Bruce Balmer, perform their farewell concert before putting down new roots in Woodstock, New York. And please don't forget to visit Lisa's website at lisamarkley.com. My name is Mike Dawson, and I am the silent pianist. You can find me at my band website, RoarElectra.com, and you can find the silent pianist podcast at everywhere podcasts are found. Goodbye, old friends. I am the silent pianist. See you next time.